Hey there. Thanks for joining me on Comedy Masterclass, where I interview creators about the craft of writing comedy. Today, I am super excited to have Pilar Alessandra with me. I first came across Pilar's work through her fantastic podcast, On the Page, which is just such a warm, fun space full of really practical writing advice that is just a lovely part of my week, and I'm super grateful for it. And also then went on to read Pilar's books, uh, The Coffee Break Screenwriter, and also The Coffee Break Screenwriter Breaks the Rules, which I'm holding up for those of you who are watching on video, which again, super fun, super practical, highly recommend. So I'm really looking forward to talking to you about craft and all things comedy today, Pilar. But before we dive in, is there anything else you'd love people to know about you and your work? I guess, I guess that I am a teacher, that I do lots of classes on, on Zoom and in person. Um, I've had the pleasure of traveling around the world, uh, training writers at schools and film festivals. So. I think probably among all those things, as much as I love the podcast and mm. I enjoyed writing my books, teaching is is my absolute number one. So I would want people to know that. Yeah. And that, I think that really comes through in the podcast that you just got such a lovely way of sharing those perspectives and really like supporting and helping people in the way that you'd want a very best teacher to. And I also read um, about you that you've read two scripts a day for 20 years, which is just also gives you such a phenomenal insight so I'm I'm really looking forward to having that perspective. At this point, I I consult a little bit differently. Yeah. So I um actually have five clients a day, and oh. uh, and I know, and it's um it's five clients a day where they're spreading out their script okay. over four to five sessions. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it really comes out to the same thing. Yeah. It's a lot of scripts. It's a lot yep. of content, but it's also like the coolest job because. You know, imagine if you got to binge watch for a living mm. or, or just watch an episode of your favorite TV show for a living. That's kind of the work that I do only on paper. Yeah, which is wonderful. And again, gives you just such a great perspective at seeing different patterns. And I think that's also why a lot of the advice that you give is so practical and so useful. So I'm going to pull out some different themes today for um, people who haven't had the benefit necessarily of that advice, or so we can put it all in one place here. And where I'd love to start with is characters. And I really loved in um, the Copy Break Screenwriter Breaks the Rules that you brought up the rule and then also the discussion of breaking it with regards to characters being likable or unlikable and had your own terminology Mm -hmm. around that. And I wondered if you'd speak a little bit more to it. And I can confess a bit of a vested interest here, which is that I'm really interested in young adult fiction too. That's what I'm writing in comedy. And there's some really interesting discussions sometimes, particularly around female teen protagonists or non-binary protagonists around likability, unlikability. And I found how you helped, uh, how you sort of dug into that really helpful. So I wondered if you wouldn't mind speaking a little bit to that. I found it a really annoying note for so many mm. years that my clients, my clients would work really hard at humanizing their characters and then uh, inevitably get the, I don't like, I don't like her. And it was mm. usually a her. Mm. Um, you know, the judgments that we were doing for so many years on female characters and what makes a female character likable to the rest mm. of the world. I would say I do feel like that's easing up, you know, thank goodness that people are. I, and you know what, you know what made it ease up is the amount of content. For years, my feeling was. Uh, of course you want your your female character to be likable when she's the only one you're going to see 
in the movies that season or on TV. You know, now we have a glut of female characters in all of their imperfections. So it's become more normal for us to go, oh, a human being is on screen. I'm interested in what makes them human. Therefore, it doesn't always have to be a positive quality. I understand that I will get all the shades of that human, that humanness, if you will, that humanity. And, uh, and I will eventually come to empathize with the characters. And that to me is what you're really going for. You're going for empathy. You're not going for likability. We often empathize with the least overtly likable characters by relating to their situation. You know, when a bigger jerk comes along and does something to them, when something's exhausting them, when they're being frustrated, you know, sometimes we're that jerk and, um, and we realize, oh yeah, I, I empathize with that person even uh, if I wouldn't necessarily hang out with them or don't think that they're making a positive choice. That was a very rambling a- answer to your question, but I hope we, you got to an answer there somewhere. Yeah, no, totally. That wasn't rambling at all. And I, like you say, that um, empathy um, being key is such uh-huh. an interesting point. And also in the book, you mentioned that relatability, which I think is akin to because we don't always act when no one acts perfectly. I certainly don't. So like you say, being Mm -hmm. able to empathize with those things. I think that's wonderful. And I'm interested um, because you have got such a a great view of all the scripts that you read and so many of them. And you mentioned things changing um, in relation to sort of women and comedy and tropes. Are there Mm -hmm. any that still drive you mad or that you wish um, could be dealt with differently within the industry? Or you think there's still much space for development i'm i'm uh well it's not that they drive me mad it's just that sometimes people lack imagination and the Mm. first thing that they do with a female character is make their stakes a child Mm. immediately Mm. and it's funny like you know with a with a man that's not exactly the first thing it's always sort of like how are they going to balance being a mother and working like it's still a thing now as somebody who balances being a mother and working i I get it but i also think that there are women out there where you know their relationship with a child is not what defines them there are many people who don't have children um and to always look at women as child bearers or child nurturers it's part of what of a, a lot of female experience, but it's not every female experience. So I would like to see people stretch a little bit more in terms of how they're seeing women on screen that way. Yeah, then that's super interesting. I never thought that about that before. And for example, I don't have children. I've worked yeah. with young people in lots of uh, different situations, and I find like particularly working with teens super interesting and fascinating. But I'm not a mother, so yeah, I think that that's uh, is a really interesting example, and I'm sure there's many, many more. That's super interesting, and I'm also curious then whether because I had um, a really interesting conversation with one of my previous guests, Anandi Botez, about different tropes in comedy and women's roles and professions if there are any kind of professions that you feel like you see overused or situations or settings. Yes. And you know, it's not just for women. No, um, it's, it's not. Something, it, you know, I, you, if you watched, if you 
we're learning about the world only through movies. You would think mm. that um, the only jobs people have are um, uh, cops, mm. uh, special forces, and uh, strippers, you know? Mm. So, <laughs> so yeah. like, you know, we really enjoyed, you know, watching that woman on a, po- on a pole who's, you know, dancing to support her child and all that. And again, there is value in that, but it is not the only job, um, nor are cops the only job or special forces the only job for, for just a range of characters. So I love when I'm working with a client and saying, what, let's start with an interesting job that we haven't seen on screen before. Mm. What do you do for a living? And they'll be like, oh, no, what I do is really boring. No, it isn't. Mm. You know, I'll, I'll be able to say to them, What's the what's the worst, weirdest, funniest, oddest thing that would happen at work if you let it happen? You know, that you know, what's your worst case scenario? Um and often they will um they will they will hit me with something that is really movie worthy. So it's actually a great place to start is with a job we haven't seen on screen before, maybe even your job. And then take that to the extreme. You could have something comp- wildly original. So, in answer to your question, what jobs? Every job mm. we have, har- we have, I haven't scratched the surface with what people do, and I would really love to see that on screen. Yeah, that's wonderful advice, and like you say, so much um, to to really dig into and explore from our own lived experience. And that's advice again yeah. that I hear you. Yeah, mention on the podcast a lot too. And I think sometimes it can be easy, like you say, because we rule it off as normal or boring or we're so used to it that we undervalue uh, some of those uh, elements that could really bring life to a script. So I love that. That's Absolutely. great. Thank you. And that links a little bit in my head to in the Coffee Break screen uh, writer breaks the rules. You talk about writing what you know and breaking that rule too. So I know it sounds like mm-hmm. it's in contradiction to what, what you just said, but I don't think it is in that sense of I love how you go into things that you've learned or that could happen or what scares or thrills you. So I wondered if you could speak a little bit to that and what you were uh, thinking when you dug into that. Absolutely. It, it it starts with what you just said, right? Of course, it you're always grounded with your perspective, right? But the what ifs, mm-hmm. um, like going as far as you want, because if you only wrote what you knew you wouldn't mm. be writing about things in space, right? Yeah. Um, so it's the idea of you can still have a, you know, what if somebody like you ended up in space? Um, so there's always a little tether to who you are, and what you know, and what your experience is. Um, but the whole write what you know thing, you know, come on, you and use your imagination, go wherever you want. Now, I think it's different than trying to capture somebody's very specific um, ethnic, gender, race experience and going, well, no. I'm going to write that experience. Um, I think in that case, there is the idea that maybe you should come at that with, you know, how does, uh, you know, you're still, let's say you still want to go for an historical character, okay, that is a different race than yours. Yes, of course, right? You're going to come from, you're going to say, this is an important story to tell. 
and my way in to tell it is this way and I'm connected to it this way thematically, right? But I do think in that case, you know, sort of speaking for everyone in a certain culture that maybe you're not that connected to, sometimes that can get a little problematic. And in that case, you want to write from what you know, okay, with your way in being respectful of that other culture. Um, but again, that story needs to be told, you know, so, so yeah, you know, stretch, 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 and be tethered a little bit to your own perspective, if that, if that makes sense. It does. Yeah, no, it does. That explains it really, really clearly. I love that. And I'm curious, when you're teaching, and as you mentioned, you are such a great teacher, you run so many brilliant courses. Are there any particular shows that you find yourself going back to with regards to comedies to use as examples? And if so, why do you pick those particular shows? Um, let's see. Well, in my future class, um, I use an example from Booksmart. Mm. Um, and I use that, I use a first scene where we get to know all of the characters all at once because we get to know them through like tropes and archetypes. And then we break those things down over the course of the movie. And I think it does it brilliantly. And I also think it does it for young people in mm. a way that feels real and contemporary. And it's good for me to show some of my, uh, my, students who might not be young people like yeah the world is not john hughes anymore you know mm -hmm. um there's there's so many uh, there there's so many new nuances to the way that young people are right now so it's entertaining it's informative it it talks about character and it talks about establishing and ultimately breaking those the character's own rules so that's one of the comedy examples that i use uh, in feature. Yeah. Um, in my rewrite class, I use uh, a trailer from Bridesmaids mm. because I like to talk about set piece. And mm. set piece is how you take, you know, a setting, how you turn a setting into an experience. And if you look at Bridesmaids, which is solely about like just, you know, bridal events that if you've ever been a bridesmaid, you have to do, right? So how do you make that interesting? They took every setting for a bridal event and turned it into an experience. Mm -hmm. So that's another one that I show. Um, I love I love showing comedy. Books yeah, that's babe. lovely. I love that. And I listened to uh, your recent episode with Rita, your daughter too. And there's a really ah. great discussion about Booksmart in there. So I'll put that in the show notes too. It's a really great episode. And I um, oh, you. loved the recommendation for Sex Education as well, which again, such a great show. So lots of great recommendations in your podcast episode too. So yeah, that makes Thank total you. I'll sense. I'll let her know. Yes, <laughs> great taste. All of them. I was like, yes, <laughs> I love that show. I love that show. Because again, um, the, as you said, like really great uh, examples of representations that are not back in the uh, era that we no longer need to be in. Things have moved on. So thankfully, yes. which is wonderful. So... When this is not an easy question, but when um, sure. you're like looking at like the just the sheer volume of scripts that you read and the volume of students that you work with, are there any p particular patterns that you see emerging for students who are writing comedy or maybe they're writing you know comedy dramas 
that you um, find yourself giving advice on again and again? And that the answer may be no, because it may be that it's different for all students. Well, it, we just hit on one just in this last discussion. Um, um, pe- like, for example, if they're writing uh, a, a high school comedy, um, they will always use a John Hughes model um, um, uh, because we tend to write the thing that in a way, we, t- we tend to copy the models that influenced us. And um, a lot of times writers don't even realize they're doing it. And while you can really learn from the movies that influenced you, and you should, um, you have to take all that plus um, your own experience plus what's happening in the world, right? And put it in a blender and, and, and you know, turn it into a great smoothie. And um, that part is something I sometimes have to push comedy writers to do. Like, mm-hmm. you, know, uh, you know, what comedy can come out of what's happening right now not like this buddy comedy formula mm-hmm. that you grew up with. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, you're going to find yourself writing in a dated way mm-hmm. if you're just replicating what you grew up with. So I'm always kind of pushing people out of their comfort zone with writing comedy and making them really look around them and go, what's happening right in the moment? Yeah, that's such good advice. I think that's really good advice for all genres too, but particularly, as you say, with comedy. So I I love all the things that you've covered so far. And what I'd love to ask about next is um, in your book, you very simply but elegantly identify the kind of model of trauma, training, trials and triumph, which I Mm -hmm. thought was just such a clear like practical way of not getting overloaded because again you, you're amazing at going into like really forensic detail about things but sometimes it's also helpful to have those sort of really broad structures too um how did you start to think about uh, that model and do you feel like it applies as much to comedy as it does to drama Um, I think it absolutely does. I want to, I want to let you know something. So, uh, the, the coffee break screenwriter that you're referring to the last edition, I believe was 2016 or 2017. And there are, there is an update I really want to make on on many things. Yeah. Um, for one thing, I would change the pronouns. Okay. Yeah. Um, I was so proud of myself for, you know, all the he, she that I did. And then my non, my non-binary oldest child was like, yeah, there's another way to go. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, I want to change the pronouns. I want to change the examples. But the reason I'm bringing that up now is because I also want to change the model you just said, the structural mm-hmm. model from trauma training trials and triumphs mm-hmm. to trouble training mm-hmm. trials and triumph. Mm-hmm. And the reason is when I said trauma, my feeling was, you know, uh, act one creates this sort of like, we are sort of, we're shaken out of our co- comfort zone, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, so it could be a, a positive or negative trauma, right? Something something happens that's negative or, you know, the trauma of falling in love. But um, a, a writer, just one writer, mm. wrote me and said, you know, I've experienced real trauma in my life mm. and I, I feel uncomfortable with this. So I've changed it from trauma to trouble which mm. makes complete sense. And I'm not sure why I didn't do that to begin with. 
Okay. Mm. Except that maybe I was being a little dramatic. So I'd like people to think about it as trouble, training, yeah. trial, and triumph. And actually might feel more comedy friendly that way. So mm. yes, it absolutely applies to comedy, right? Because mm. in act one, you know, um, a, a, a character either gets in trouble or has trouble thrust upon him or both. Okay. And that leads them to training. Okay. Where they're kind of in this new experience and they're trying to figure it out and they're learning on the job. Mm. Right. And they learn the rules of that. And they learn who their friends are and who their enemies are. And then in the trials part in act two B, right? Now they got to test all that out and they're often on a mission and there's push, there's like a lot of pushback, you know, or the antagonist comes to get them. And so that's why I called it the trials part. And the triumph part in act three is not movie, not Hollywood triumph, because if in a drama, Sometimes people have to uh, die to complete mm. a mission, okay? And in comedy, you know, often it is an awkward, um, just just sort of a, a series of awkward events that gets you to completion, but you do get to completion, you mm. know? So it can be messy, but it's still the triumph of completing a story, of solving a problem, mm -hmm. of getting, of completing a mission. So that's what those four things mean. And again, I apologize for the rambling answer, but I did have to say that because I it, it's it's bothering me that mm -hmm. it's there and I can't fix it right now. I can't oh. go into everybody's books and with my red pen and maybe yeah. I can sneak in in the night and, yeah. and you know, like <laughs> a tooth fairy. Yeah, but we can. It's great that you've updated it here, and that's also. Just one thing that I massively respect about you as a teacher that you spoke about really feeling like a teacher at the beginning and you remind me of like the very best teachers like the antithesis of that is someone who studies their subject for a period say becomes an expert at, at college and then that is what they continue to teach with sort of minor updates whereas you because that you say you're so actively involved with writers and I get the impression from your podcast that you just learn from and respect everyone. Like it was a wonderful um, podcast episode with Rita, your daughter, and I learned so much from listening too. Like, so taking in all those inputs constantly means that you are someone then who is able to change in the way that you said that we kind of need to as writers. We don't want to be frozen in a, in a, in a period that was right for that period. But language changes, culture changes, Absolutely. our understanding changes that you say we, there's so many things, thankfully, now that um, we've had the opportunity to hear as feedback from people. And there's so many things, again, in my own experience, like working and being on a board um, with different charities in the LGBTQIA plus space, where I've just done so many things where I think, oh my gosh, I wish I could time travel back and change how I wrote that or how I said that. But the opportunity now is that it's like, oh, but now I get to, and that's what's the most important thing. So thanks so much for giving Absolutely. Uh, that update. And also, yeah, this kind of trouble for comedy is fun. I like it. <laughs> so Absolutely. how much trouble can you get them Absolutely. into? Right. It sounds more comedic for yeah, sure. It does. Um, I, and thank you for saying that about the podcast. You know, uh, you know, you're a, you're a podcast host, and I've been podcasting for eight hundred something episodes. Oh, wow! I can't wonderful. Yeah, and I can't <laughs> I can't remember at what point it was that 
I just realized like, oh, my only job on this show is just to sit back and learn. Hmm. And hmm. once I had that philosophy of, yeah, I'm just gonna, I'm going to be the student for an hour. Hmm. The show got so much better instead of it always being about, yes, I know. And I, right. Um, hmm. I can't say I'm not guilty of that still from time to time, but for the most part, if I just go, I'm going to sit back and learn. Mm. It makes me a better teacher. It makes for a better show, you know, and everybody learns a little something. And it's just yeah. the easiest approach to podcasting. Like yeah. my job's like, it's, 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 it's pretty easy on that show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So one thing I really loved from your books was this idea of verbal games within comedy. Uh -huh. Like, you, yes. For example, you mentioned like, mm -hmm. like, guess my secret or tell me you love me. I wonder for those who haven't yet read your books, um, if you could speak a little bit more to what you mean by verbal games and how they can really bring like comedic dialogue to life. Absolutely. And it is my favorite part of, of teaching is talking about dialogue. Um, yeah. Uh, think about any dialogue driven scene as a game in terms of uh, the name of the game being the agenda of that conversation. So like you said, it could be tell me a secret, tell me you love me. That's the name of the game. That's the agenda. How do you play it? Well, that's where your verbal strategy comes in of maybe you play it by uh, sharing stories. Maybe you play it by um, sharing jokes. Maybe you play it by listing statistics till the other person corrects you enough. Um, so there's all these different verbal strategies. That's how you play the game. So if you know what your agenda is, that's the game. If you know what your verbal strategy is, that's how to play it. And then you can ask yourself, well, who wins and how in this game of my dialogue? And, um, and that will help you kind of plot out your whole dialogue driven scene. Now, even when somebody wins the game, sometimes they kind of lose the scene. You know, mm. um, I, I always go back. I don't, I haven't actually mentioned this in class for a while, but when Harry met Sally, okay, mm. there's this moment where he's trying to get her to believe that, you know, um, every guy that she's friends with really wants to sleep with her. And they spar back and forth. That's the game of it. The game is, I'm going to get you to believe this thing. Uh, the strategy is, she's going to list certain people and he's going to come at her with all the ways they want to sleep with her. Mm. Well, he wins that game. He wins it because he does convince her. But her line is, well, that's too bad because you were the only person I knew in New York. Mm. So he loses the scene. Mm. He loses a friend. And it's just a, a really great way to show that like, yes, you know, you get your point out there. It was really gamey, but it can land on something where it still pushes the story forward. He mm. won the game, but he lost the scene. That's wonderful. And that's really, really helpful. You've already mentioned um, sequences, like they're all like mm -hmm. set pieces with the bridesmaids. Are there any other um, structural things that you love to teach when it comes to comedy? Or ways of helping people well, think you know, about that bigger structure or pacing? Yeah, you know, I have changed my thoughts a little bit of, about that mm. over the years too. So I used to make everybody take their, their acts, which is, you know, act one, act two A, act two B, and act three, right? Mm. And I used to make them break them up even more into mm. sequences. So they had to think about the goal, activity, complication of 
sequences in between acts. That really works for some people who love taking those bigger pieces and breaking them down and analyzing them and then writing. There's mm. a certain mindset that a writer that loves that, but there's a certain mindset of writer that gets overwhelmed by that. So sometimes, uh, like when I'm working one-on-one -on -one in my one-on-one -on -one coaching with, with clients, I'm like, let's just figure it out your main act breaks. End of act one, the, you know, the midpoint between 2A and 2B, the end of act two, and what you're going to do in act three. And then I make them write. I'm like, don't break it down anymore. Because what happens sometimes is they write toward that first act break, Mm -hmm. they'll find things along the way instead of analyzing it. And so my, I guess my point is structurally, as long as you know where you're going to kind of launch into act two, what's going to be the event and the uh, emotional reaction to that event that launches you into act two, write your way there. What do you need to set up to show this person's life so that when this event comes, we understand it's a disruption and that will launch them in. Great, write it. Because you will find things out about your character, your world, their rules. Um, you'll see setups that you can pay off later on that if you're overanalyzing it, sometimes you get stuck in that outline model. So structurally, I'm all for just go to your key points now. I love that. Wonderful. Okay. So just a couple of last questions before we wrap up. And again, I will say, I just, I love that you make space for so many different kinds of writers too, and still manage to make it really practical. So thank you. That's great for all those people listening. So I would love to just ask like any particular favorite comedy characters that you have. And, um, I know that that can be sort of really uh, tricky to think of when we're like pulling up all the, the spectrum of them. But for example, you've mentioned Booksmart, you mentioned Bridesmaids. I just wondered if you wouldn't mind pulling out um, an example from those or from a different show if you'd prefer, just for what it was that you found um, really worked about the character for you, just so we could have that live example. So I'm wondering if this isn't me also projecting because I mm. love her so much, but okay, uh, Julia Louise Dreyfus, and oh. um, like, yeah, so Elaine mm. in uh, Seinfeld mm. turned into uh, oh god, what was her name? The lead in, in, in Veep. Veep, yes, I yes. love that show, right? I'm and blanking on her name it, as well, but yeah, if you look at it, Elaine in Seinfeld, mm. when she grew up, right, I think became that that character. I think they're just, they're, they're, you know, a spectrum of the same person. And what I've always loved about Elaine was, um, Elaine and Seinfeld was a real person mm. who, uh, had a job. Okay. Who had, uh, ridiculous male friends mm. who, um, uh, had, sex with more than one person and didn't feel guilty about it um who you know had life goals that kind of changed from time to time she was human and it was again mm. very rare to see a human woman <laughs> <Yes>. on screen <laughs> so i yes. just 
loved her. I loved, loved, loved her. And so she, she, to me still stays sort of my, my favorite, like, you know, uh, character of that time. And then years later, she became vice president of the United States in something called Veep. And mm. she was terrible. Mm. I think it's Selena. Right. Selena yes, Meyer. Yes. You're okay, right. So, so she became Selena and, um, and that woman was awful. She didn't start off that awful. That was definitely, you know, where we, we empathize with her because we've all been in a job mm. that we're underappreciated, right? And yeah. what we saw in the first season was a vice president who couldn't even get a meeting with the, with the president, right? Who had to do all the crap jobs, mm. you know, that the president didn't want to do. We've all been there in a job where we felt under, undervalued and doing all the work for the boss, right? So that made us empathize with her. And then they gave her an arc that was reflective of our political system so that by the end of the show, she had really crossed over from being somebody we empathize with to somebody who was a villain. Mm. And um, that may not have settled right with everybody, but it was very true. Again, it was shining a light on politically where we mm. see some, some noble people in politics turn into monsters and show how power corrupts mm. um so that doesn't sound that funny um but watching uh you know how that happened to her mm. they made it they showed the absurdity of it mm. which made it which made it funny and then lastly her clothes mm. oh my god <laughs> elaine's clothes in the 90s and selena's clothes in the two 2020s oh my God, I just, I died. So I, uh, I would dress like her all through the years. So yeah, that was my <laughs> wonderful. So hats off to her. She's my fave. Oh no, she is incredible. And, uh, yeah, it's lovely thinking about them in parallel like that, like that arc, but yeah, that's wonderful. Great example. Mm -hmm. So final question. I'd just love to know if there's any advice you've been given mm -hmm. that you found helpful or find yourself applying. Uh, any advice for what? for um for writing or having a career in uh the creative industries? Sure. Um well one thing that I've noticed with that's a constant with mm. the people who are on my podcast. Mm. is they're chill mm. and it's something it's it because you know everybody's like you know what's the secret sauce mm. you know mm. you know what's the formula to success and here i've had all these people from all parts of the industry but they they've all achieved a certain amount of success to be there on the podcast mm. and the thing that unites all of them is that they kind of go with the flow they have their eyes open. They're not always pushing their agenda. Um, they're kind of chill. They're easy to get along with. And I, and I realized, oh, that's the secret to success, you know, is, is try and be a pleasant, open person rather yeah. than pushing yourself on everybody all the time. Um, and, uh, and that doesn't mean you shouldn't have a drive, mm. but, uh, you know, uh, sort of maybe a work, a work drive. And mm. just a personal chill. Put those two <laughs> things together, you should do pretty well. That's incredible advice, which I've never heard anyone give. 
and it makes so yes. much sense and is probably well certainly very reassuring to me I think that's great writing career and life and being a human advice so it couldn't be better than that <laughs> I hope so, so before we end um where should people go if they want to find out more about you and your work and of course I will put this in the show notes sure sure um so on the page dot TV, like television, mm. is my website. It's a catch all for everything. You can sign up for my Zoom classes there. Um, you, there's a, a link to the podcast there. Um, you know, there's even a, a link to the, the publishing company where you can buy the books. Um, but I would love to see everybody in class. It's a lot of fun and you will get things done. Yes. I don't doubt it. Thank you so much, Pelo. I really appreciate your time. Oh, you're welcome. It was a pleasure.